when Tolkien and Lewis use the word myth, they don't mean it in the modern sense of something which is untrue, a lie. We talk about something being a myth as being a lie. They never use it in that sense. A myth is a story, and that the ancient myths, the ancient stories, were ways that people before Christ were searching for truth and for God. And he said the gospel is a, a myth like all the others, except it's the true myth. It's the myth that really happened, where the author is not a human storyteller, but God himself. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné, and today I am joined by a colleague and friend, uh, Joseph Pierce, uh, who is uh, the author of a wonderful uh, book by Tan Publishing called Further Up and Further In Understanding Narnia. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Glad to have you on the show, and uh, glad to have you this semester uh, teaching at Ave Maria University for a limited basis. Uh, oh, it's, so. good to, it's good to be back. I was uh, Obviously, I was here for many years and yes. uh, in the past, and it's good to, have, to renew that relationship. Excellent. Glad. that's. Uh, we're very excited, too. And uh, so I've been really uh, excited by this book that came out uh, a couple of years ago. And I've, ever since I read it, I've been looking forward to getting a chance to talk to you about it. Uh, as, as our listeners uh, know, I teach a course and have taught a course on uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and C.S. Lewis and his theological apologetics uh, for, you know, over a dozen years at Ave Maria. And uh, when I read this book, uh, it was just a delight uh, to see, I think, two things that really struck me. One was just a lover of uh, Lewis and a lover of Narnia. And Lewis describes friendship one time where he says that, uh, where he says it's like, Lovers look face to face, but friends stand side by side looking at something. And he describes uh, one of his friends as kind of like, oh, you too love this. And so I feel like those who uh, love Narnia are, are always dear friends. And then secondly, one of the things I loved is that you can always learn more. And, and I know I learned a lot more in reading this book. And I hope that our listeners, and just to be clear too, uh, these are both you know, today's talk is uh, for those who may have read the Narnia stories, and I think they can learn more. But they're also especially for those who haven't read the Narnia stories and perhaps a way of kind of understanding them and understanding a little bit about Lewis uh, and, and what he wanted to teach. So just for starters, you know, kind of that big question, right? Why Narnia? You know, why is Narnia worth talking about and studying? Well, uh, I will get to the question in just a moment, but I want to first of all say that um, I'm very gratified to know that uh, a theology professor of your caliber has taught whole courses on Lewis uh, and can find something new and refreshing and enjoyable in, in my uh, my book. So I feel vindicated. So, so, <laughs> so, so thank you for that. Well, I mean, the, the, the most important thing is that... Um, we, that literature allow, allows us to, to see reality on a deeper level. Mm -hmm. And we have to realize that we can't even read scripture unless we read literarily. Reading literally does not enable us to understand nonfiction, you know, and certainly scripture, which is not, non not purely nonfiction. It's, it's, it's poetry, uh, it's praise, it's mysticism, as well as history. So you have to read, uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas tells us, on, on, on four distinct levels, the literal level, but then three separate 
allegorical levels, which are literary levels. So mm-hmm. you know, reading literarily allows us to see how words signify something beyond themselves. So when we when we look at Narnia, we're not just looking at a fictional fantasy world that has no relationship at all to our own world. It actually holds up a mirror to the cosmos in which we find ourselves. Tolkien says in his famous lecture on fairy stories that fairy stories hold up a mirror to man. They show us ourselves. So when we when we read Narnia, it allows us, if you like, by going through the wardrobe into this world to actually go deeper into the world in which we find ourselves. That's the paradox. Wow. Um, that's really, well, that's kind of just powerfully put. And it reminds me, I think in the story or in your book, you mention uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, how does the parable and the prodigal son, right, which didn't happen, tell us about reality? Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example, if you like, of, of the power of literature. Prodigal Son, as a character, is a fictional character. He's a figment of our Lord's imagination. The narrative is a fictional narrative. You know, the Prodigal Son didn't exist. His brother didn't exist. Uh, his father didn't exist. The pigs didn't exist. The mm. servants didn't exist. It's a, it's a fictional narrative. But it's it teaches us so much about ourselves the natural fact we don't when we when we hear or read the story of the prodigal son we don't say the prodigal son is like us we say we are like the prodigal son mm-hmm. in other words this fictional character that christ presents to us is more real in some sense than we are because he's the archetype of yeah. which we are types mm-hmm. so christ himself if you like sanctifies story in the telling of story and and mm-hmm. and we can certainly see how great truths can emerge through fictional narratives and and christ is our teacher in this so we shouldn't be surprised yeah. when we when we step through a wardrobe so stepping through the wardrobe into narnia you know, which is the first time we enter Narnia is you know, is with Lucy as she walks through this wardrobe and discovers this world. Every time we open a great book, every time we open the line of which in a wardrobe, we're stepping into a wardrobe because it's mm-hmm. taking us, you know, out of ourselves and into something which will enable us to understand ourselves, our neighbors, and our God and our relationship with each other on a much deeper level. Yeah, and I think when we one of the things I appreciated about the book was that by talking a little bit about, say, the parable of the prodigal son and these other ones, it kind of like disarms us from letting go of maybe that prejudice we might have against fantasy literature, fairy tales, uh, fiction. Because if we talk about the prodigal son being the reality from which we learn to judge ourselves and we recognize what is our Lord doing, well, our Lord is saying you can't see yourself very clearly. Right. Uh, unfortunately, our ego blinds us not only to God, right? It edges God out of the picture. It also blinds us to ourselves, yes, right? And and we can see this in part, right? That's the, the problem with the elder son. The elder son is blind to the fact that, right, he too is dependent upon the father's generosity. Uh, but when we do that, then we can begin to say in a way that, I don't know how to put it, otherwise would almost sound scandalous to say that Narnia becomes kind of a reality, a greater reality by which we can judge ourselves and judge our lives. So maybe if you could say a little bit more just about Tolkien and Lewis and how they indic- how, did, how, how they came to this understanding, right, that fantasy and fairy stories actually could help us see ourselves and see the world maybe and ultimately see God better than we could without those stories. Well, the best way of, of, of talking about that is to actually talk about the way that Tolkien and Lewis talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was because of what I call Tolkien's philosophy of myth, so unpacking that philosophy, the love of wisdom to be found in stories, right? Mm-hmm. So philosophy of 
myth. When we must understand when Tolkien and Lewis use the word myth, they don't mean it in the modern sense of something which is untrue, a lie. We talk about something being a myth as being a lie. They never use it in that sense. A myth is a story. Now, a story can either tell the truth or it can, of course, weave a lie. But um, Lewis said, but myths are, are lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. In other words, we like them because they're beautiful, but they don't tell us the truth. And therefore, ultimately, in the, in the bigger scheme of things, they are worthless. And this was like, you know, a red rag to a bull to Tolkien, who responded, no, they're not lies. And he basically said that we understand uh, reality through stories and that the ancient myths, the ancient stories were ways that people before Christ were searching for Christ, searching for, for truth and for God. And then he said, which is, sounds radical and, and shocking, and he said the gospel is a, a myth like all the others, except it's the true myth. It's the myth that really happened, where the author is not a human storyteller, but God himself who tells the story not with words but with facts and ultimately enters the story himself. So in other words, it's the fulfillment of all myth, of all story. Just as the Old Testament is a fulfillment uh, of the covenant and it comes to fruition and fulfillment in Christ, well, the, the, the gospel is also the fulfillment of all stories and it contains mm-hmm. uh, the desire of, of how we want things to be, how we think, what things should be. Uh, in relation to how they actually are and allows us to go deeper into reality. So mm-hmm. for, for Tolkien, you know, that the, the gospel is the true story. Yes, and uh, there is that beautiful, and it's it's a beautiful fact and a beautiful thing that we have witnessed in letters because Lewis, I think who probably in 1929 or so has a conversion to theism, to believing in God, uh, a year or two later, probably in 1931, in the fall, he has this late-night conversation with uh, his friend Dyson and Tolkien. They're up till 3 a.m. Uh, in Oxford, and he records that conversation where he he somehow is able to break through the idea that he loved myths and stories, and he loved truth, but he could never put them together, and he certainly didn't see them together in the story of Jesus Christ until Tolkien said, wait a second, that's exactly what has happened. Uh, and we can see it in part in say, even in John 1.14, right? In the beginning was the word, the logos. John 1.14 says that, right? The logos was made flesh. The word was made flesh. The logos was made sarks. When the logos, the principle of God's reason by which God creates the universe, that same reason actually, right, becomes flesh, becomes human, has a story, Right, uh, and if you see in the creed, it's not merely right. Jesus saves us; it's that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We have to tell the story, right? We even include odd things like he was, you know, crucified under Pontius Pilate. Right? right, he's entered fully into our history. So the fact that God becomes man is really the idea that the truth becomes story, becomes myth. It's interesting too that I think when Lewis uh, initially said that quote, I think he was still in his uh, kind of pre-conversion stage. Uh, and as he writes in Surprised by Joy, his own autobiography, as you know, he describes in a way that he had two huge loves really before he comes back to, before he becomes a Christian in his atheist days, is on the one hand, he's somewhat convinced, and he had done his degrees in philosophy, his first degree in philosophy, he's somewhat convinced that there is some kind of absolute uh, he calls it a new look, but it's whether or not it's a Hegelian absolute, but there's some kind of absolute principle behind the universe philosophically. 
But he said that principle makes no demands on you. It really, you know, it, it doesn't kind of challenge you. It doesn't call you. Uh, and then at the same time, he had another love that he'd always had in his whole life, just a love of great stories. Uh, the Norse tales, uh, these wonderful stories that inspired him. And so he kind of had his, almost like his head and his heart divorced from one another, his love of philosophy and his love of story, romanticism and rationalism were bifurcated in his soul. And in part, Tolkien showed him that you could unite those both on the natural level because stories contain truths and then at the supernatural level because the story of Jesus Christ contains the greatest truth that we need to know. Uh, so I think it's also important to see that right, Lewis didn't just come to this understanding easily. Yeah, right? He really wrestled with it for many years. And in some ways, you know, but for the grace of God and but for friends like Tolkien, yeah. um, you know, he may have never been able to overcome that bifurcated soul. Right. I mean, it, it shows the power of friendship, right? Yes. Uh, it's the power of friendship and reason. So that, that, that meeting, September 1931, within mm -hmm. two weeks of that, that Lewis, so Lewis says, but myths are lies, therefore worthless. And then two weeks later, uh, re recounting the conversation with, 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 with Tolkien and, and their friend Hugo Dyson. So I've definitely uh, begun to believe in the Christian God and the long night talk with Tolkien and Dyson had a great deal to do with it. Mm -hmm. And we should say back up a little bit because you talk about the, the, the conversion from atheism to theism yeah. on, as, as, a, as a, a movement towards ultimate conversion yeah. to Christianity. That It, it was when um, Lewis read Chesterton's The Everlasting Man in 1926, I think, a year after it was published, he said, I, I saw the Christian outline of history laid out before me for the first time in a way that made sense. Mm, so I think mm -hmm. that we, yeah, we have Chesterton also, who was also a, a significant influence on Tolkien, to thank for nudging Lewis in the right direction where he yeah. would then be receptive to Tolkien's line of reasoning. Sure. And, and in some ways, a, a kind of a bigger picture is that Lewis was influenced by his friends, Dyson and Tolkien. But also, in a way, this friendship that he could have with Chesterton, which was not personal, but it was personal through his writings. Yes. So uh, maybe that's a way of thinking a little bit about writing and reading as expanding our friendships. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes say that most of my best friends are dead because mm -hmm. my closest friends are, are, are my favorite writers. And Lewis in Surprise Boy Joy speaks about his reading of Chesterton as a relationship and as a friendship, even though they never met. Um, they, Chesterton became a friend of Lewis's, right, yeah. through his books. Mm -hmm. So uh, as a fellow, I mean, you're uh, an, an author of many books. And what led you to decide to try to write a book on Narnia? Well, I mean, I didn't actually read the Narnia stories for the first time until I was a grown-up. Uh, and my, my, my initial idea for the title of the book was Narnia for grown-ups. Mm -hmm. um, and... Thankfully, the publisher nixed that idea because I, I like the, 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 one, the, the title they came up with better. But, um, I, you know, I, I read it as an adult and, I, I be, and it was part of my journey towards conversion. Mm -hmm. And it was clear to me that this, these, although these are children's stories, they're awash with deep philosophical and theological and historical insights. And so, you know, they, we can't just read these as sort of naive works of children's literature. They're much more than that. They are that. Uh, not, not naive, but they're mm -hmm. great works of children's literature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but they, they also teach us more. And they, that's why all of us should be rereading Narnia throughout mm -hmm. our lives, not thinking, well, they're children's books. I, mm -hmm. I, left that, I left that in the nursery. You know, I'm not interested in returning. No, if you want to really go deeper into your understanding of your faith, there are a few better places to go, quite frankly, 
than to go into Narnia with C.S. Lewis. So within that, uh, let's uh, take up one of the great questions, the character of Aslan, right? Lewis would insist that Aslan is not an allegory of Christ, and yet most readers see Christ in Aslan. Uh, And it's clear that in many ways, Lewis is, you know, Aslan is, is Christ. So how is Aslan both not Christ and Christ? Yeah, well, the first thing we have to do is clarify the way that Lewis and Tolkien use the word allegory because they don't use it in the same way all the time. Mm-hmm. So when they when they say that you know, that Narnia is not allegory, Aslan is not uh, an allegorical, Middle Earth is not an allegory, they're using allegory in a very strict formal sense, uh, in the sense that uh, a formal allegory has personified abstractions. So an example mm-hmm. of a personified abstraction in Lewis's work, um, which might remind us of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, is uh, there's. Um, there's a monster called the spirit of the age and this monster called the spirit of the age this is in his book um pilgrim's regress this monster called the spirit of the age imprisons people right they can't mm. escape from this evil spirit but then this beautiful woman in shining armor comes along and her name is reason mm-hmm. right and reason has two younger two younger sisters uh uh theology and philosophy right so these are personified distractions reason doesn't have a personality because reason is not a person it's a it's not it's a an, an abstract idea reason itself personified uh, okay. as, as a woman so aslan's not that what to, uh, lewis would say about aslan is he's a supposal mm-hmm. would be the word that lewis would use so let's suppose that god makes other cosmoses right and let's suppose that in one of these uh, that uh, anim- what we would call animals that look like animals are actually rational beings and if these animals are rational beings, how might God uh, manifest himself incarnationally to them? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, the, so the king of the beasts, right? So mm-hmm. uh, as, as this lion, and there's also you know, typological connection to the lion of Judah to the Old Testament as well. But um, so, so for Lewis, uh, Aslan is not a personified abstraction of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. right? He's a mm-hmm. representation of mm. Jesus Christ based yeah. upon a supposal. Um, mm. But th- th- those those fine distinctions aside, he is the son of God mm. and made manifest incarnationally in all seven of the stories. So mm. to see Aslan as a Christ figure is, is something that cannot really be denied. You know? Yeah, it's, it's, I remember reading uh, one author who noted that, although again, it's not a personified abstraction or personification of an abstraction, right? Uh, in some ways, Lewis has done more because he's actually written a book, right, in a great story in which God becomes incarnate. Yes. Right. It, it, it's not as though Aslan is simply representing Christ, but Aslan is the incarnate, salvific Lord. And then all of a sudden we realize in a way like, whoa. I mean, when I look at Narnia, I'm not only learning more about myself or learning more about the world around me or just the general idea of a creator uh, through this fictional story i actually can in a strange way learn more about the reality of jesus christ amen and then so you look at the line which wardway with the first of the books written now we see that Aslan lays down his life for the sinners, right, for Edmund in particular, mm-hmm. uh, because it's the innocent victim. And this is wonderful thing about the difference between uh, justice and mercy, right? Which takes us much deeper into the mystery of it, because 
Yes, the, the White Witch says that you know that that every uh, evil uh, evil action um, she has a right through justice, mm-hmm. right, to 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 punish. And I think it's uh, I think it's Susan that said, "Well, can't you, Aslan? Can't you bend your own rules, right?" Mm-hmm. And Aslan responds by by growling, right? Um, uh, and he says, "No, that 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 justice does demand punishment." He said, but that, that that's that's that the the white witch knows this mystery from the beginning of the world, right? Mm-hmm. From the beginning of time. But he says, but there's a deeper mystery from before the dawn of time, mm-hmm. and that deeper mystery from before the dawn dawn of time is if an innocent victim willingly lays down his life for the guilty, then uh, then time itself goes backwards. This deep truth before the dawn of time is mercy, God's mercy. Yeah. Right, and so we have deep theology here um, if, through Narnia. And the other thing we should say about it, by the way, about the Narnia stories and, and also Lewis's space trilogy, he says that mod- modernity, modern man, is so ignorant of theology that you can, you can smuggle no end of theology under cover of romance. So the thing is, of course, we read these as Christians, mm-hmm. and, and, and actually, you know, I read them, first of all, not as a Christian, okay. and, 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 and we can get a lot of depth out of them. It deepens our faith. But many people who would run a mile if you try to suggest they open a Bible will read the Lion, Rich, and Wardrobe and will be getting Christian truths. Mm-hmm. And if they fall in love with the Christian truths, right, they, they are then already on the path to Christ himself. So it's a great way of evangelizing mm-hmm. what you might call stealth evangelization. And, and I think as part of that, the characters in Narnia are real, right? They have a kind of reality to their own. You know, Edmund, as you describe, uh, in part, you could say, you know, sim- or is is an instance of right a sinner, a traitor, but he's also just Edmund, right? He's he's a young boy, uh, written in a post World War uh, time, who, as you know, Lewis is writing the story right after World War II in England, who, because he wants more treats, he wants more food. Uh, he wants perhaps some kind of, um, you know, treats and hot chocolate that are enchanted. And the more you eat them, the more you want them and the less satisfied you are, which are a lot of we have right foods and drinks that uh, enchant uh, uh, people today. But he's also very relatable because he and he does end up kind of just through being mad at his older brother. Right. And annoyed with his younger sister, who's so good, and all these other things, by being driven by family annoyances, and then this struggle with, you know, um, with almost something like akin to kind of, you know, almost a little bit like addiction or different things. And uh, Lewis's brother struggled with alcoholism, so we know that Lewis is aware of these phenomena. Uh, almost like a relatable character that ends up betraying his siblings to the White Witch. But it's like, the, so I don't, you know, just that's such a real character. So could you say a little bit more about how maybe characters like Edmund or other characters in the story, uh, it's not just that they, you know, Lewis kind of, you know, in this world of literature, fiction, uh, what Tolkien would call sub-creation, that, that it kind of takes on a reality of its own, which then helps us to see things new. Absolutely. So the difference between Edmund, for instance, and the character of reason in, in the Pilgrim's Regress, yeah. the reason is two-dimensional. 
Uh, reason has no personality, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Edmund has a personality. He's a person. Yeah. So it, it, it's the weakness of the person that leads to the temptation and the succumbing to the temptation and then the yeah. addiction to the sin and therefore the slavery to the white witch yes. uh, that leads to the treachery that, uh, of betraying his own family. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also, you know, he comes to see the consequence. He also realizes the lie. The white witch is a liar. He, he was believing an illusion. He was mm-hmm. deluded through his addiction comes to his senses, and then there's a wonderful confession. You know, mm-hmm. he goes off by himself with Aslan and makes the confession. Uh, and then in later stories, uh, for instance, in, 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 in Prince Caspian, you know, Lucy, and again, she's also wonderful, and her name means light, of course, as in St. Lucy being the patron saint of the blind, um, looks the Latin for light. She sees through a simple childlike faith. And when she's the only one that can see Aslan, and the other three children can't, right? The first one that, that can see afterwards is Edmund. And the reason for that is that although he can't see Aslan as Lucy can, he has faith mm-hmm. that Lucy can see Aslan. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason he has that faith is because he, he, because he knows what it is not to have it. In other words, he knows the gift that he's been given, and, and he's grateful for that gift. So he said, well, I believe that Lucy can see Aslan, even though I can't. Mm-hmm. And then following that act of faith he then starts to see Aslan, right? Yeah. So uh, we see the, the deepening of Edmund as a character through, through the stories. Yeah, that's uh, powerfully put. Uh, and you know, maybe if you could say a little bit also, let's then take the character of Aslan. Um, how are, what are some examples where you know, the character of Aslan, again, becomes a real character? And and not you know to kind of, not merely a representation of Christ, but a character uh, that has its his own personality, his own um, reality. Yeah. So uh, obviously, within the, the, the line of which in the wardrobe, we see the sorrow. You know, Aslan has his agony in the garden. He walks off by himself. When the, the two girls follow him, uh, and he knows that they're there. He calls them over and he's comforted by them. Mm-hmm. You know, he, it's good for him not to be alone. Uh, you know, this is the eve of his great sacrifice. Um, we also have a sense of humor. Uh, you know, at the beginning um, of the magician's nephew, or the, the creation story, the magician's nephew. You know, um, one of the one of the talking beasts that have just been created says, "You know, have I just told the first joke?" And Aslan, you know, says, "No, you are the first joke." <laughs> uh, you know, so you have this sense of humor, and that's very mm-hmm. difficult. You know, that that quite Chester writes a lot about the, 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 the secret mirth on the face of God, right? That yeah. we don't see the smiling. God uh, in Scripture very much, but clearly, you know, humor is mark of the imago, a mark of the imago dei in us. Humor comes from God, and so uh, we see that element of of, of humor and and ge- gentleness and humility in Aslan. So he is an incarnate, uh, if we should lion, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but you know, but it's not really. You can't say that because he's he's an intellectual, rational being. So he mm-hmm. he's he looks like a lion, but he's uh, both the son of God, but also he's one of them. He's one of the talking beasts, yeah. one of the rational beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a uh, very you know very very helpful. And I think it's interesting that there's a kind of way in which people who have read the stories, you know, even in Edmund's case, which you were describing, because Edmund not only right is a kind of uh, shows us the prodigal son walking away, but he also shows us kind of the prodigal son returning. Yes. Uh, and there is that great scene when he just goes on looking at Aslan. He knows in a way that the witch has the claim to him because he's a traitor. Uh, and right, and he, he can't fix that. All they can do is 
whatever happens, he goes on looking at Aslan. Uh, and in that reality, in that story, it's like all his hope is in Aslan, and that's it. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and, you know, and, and in a way, Lewis there is kind of showing us, you know, in part what he describes in the whole beginning of uh, Mere Christianity, where he describes that once we discover the moral law, or we become aware of the moral law, we become aware of the fact that we don't keep the moral law. Right. Uh, and as he says, God as the principle of the moral law, right? The moral law is as tough as nails, right? And so we're in a dilemma, right? Without the moral law, there's no hope and no reason for our sacrifices. But with the moral law, we're on the wrong side of it. And so we kind of recognize that. And he says that's in a way when we begin to discover ourselves in that situation, then all we can do in a way, then we become ready to hear what Christianity has to teach. And so I think that just that scene of going on looking at Aslan. Yeah, I'm also, yeah. I also think what you say about hope, uh, that that's all that Edmund has left, right? Mm -hmm. he, he knows he's the miserable sinner. He knows he's the, he's the traitor. He knows he has no rights, right? He, yeah. he, he deserves whatever happens to him. But he doesn't despair. Mm -hmm. Right, despair is the ultimate sin where you have no hope. He has nothing but hope. He's stripped bare of everything else. Reminds me, in actual fact, of Hamlet at the beginning of the play, where Hamlet is very despondent mm -hmm. and even sees suicide as uh, as as an option. Yes, and but and until his faith says, well, yeah, but it's not an option because it's not an escape. You know what happens after you die. Yeah. You know he, he knows that the, you know, the God has uh, has made self slaughter a sin. So he has. He's despondent. He's dejected. But the one thing he still has is hope. Mm -hmm. He doesn't despair. Yeah, you know, and so it's the absence of despair, hope, mm -hmm. right? Which, which, which is the is the ground zero, which through the grace of Aslan, yeah. Edmund can rise. Well, let's take a little break, and when we come back, let's consider just a few other uh, maybe key themes or key parts of the stories or characters uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners. listening to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. Welcome back, and uh, we'd love to jump in now to uh, one of the great characters uh, that Lewis develops. And as I said, we've talked a little bit about how these characters are so real that they, they take on a life of their own and we can kind of live with them and, and see the world as they see the world. Uh, Lewis actually would uh, say one time uh, that he said, when you read to your children or if your children read the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, don't tell, don't explain it to them. Uh, just let them enjoy it. And then, you know, he, he even had the hope that later than when maybe when they, or whenever they hear more about Jesus, at some point they'll discover, oh, Jesus is like Aslan. Right. Uh, and therefore somebody who's exciting and thrilling, as opposed to, he said, one of the hard things he felt as a child, right, was that he was, he felt in church, he was supposed to have certain emotions of gratitude or love that he couldn't manufacture. They weren't coming, and then he felt awkward. Uh, and so at least I think this is his way of trying to create that sense of joy and wonder. Uh, but looking at one of these great characters, 
So let's talk a little bit about Eustace Scrub, uh, who shows up in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, and, you know, tell us a little bit about maybe uh, at one point he, he becomes a dragon, right? Uh, what, 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 what does that mean and why is it important? Yeah, so again, Lewis has his wonderful ability to, to create these, these very memorable characters. And that, that the Voyage of Dawn Treader has one of the most memorable opening lines in literature. So, you know, we think of it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, mm-hmm. you know, the opening line of, uh, of A Tale of Two Cities. But it, it, the, the Voyage of Dawn Treader begins with, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, we have humor on the first line, which is yeah. good, right? Mm-hmm. It's got us chuckling, but also the word almost. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's Eustace Scrub is a mess, but he's a mess because of his parents. Mm-hmm. You know, they, we, we learn something about his parents, we get enough clues that for Lewis's generation, they would know that the, what he's referring to is either George Bernard Shaw or at least disciples of George Bernard Shaw, but all that mm. that entails is sort of mm-hmm. puritanical Nietzscheanism, uh, a desire for a, an inhuman, an inhumane superman, uh, an ubermensch, mm-hmm. um, uh, because the ordinary man is, is, is absolutely someone that needs to be reformed out of existence. Mm. And so and so Shaw was sympathetic to communism. He, he uh, was sympathetic to tyrants like Joseph Stalin, of course, responsible for killing tens of millions of people. And Shaw is sort of a representative of that sort of ideology, which is heartless. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's an inhumane rationalism. So this, mm. is, this is how Eustace Scrub is raised. So no, it's no wonder that he's, he's a mess. It's no wonder that he's very prideful and spoiled. It's no wonder that he um, turns his supercilious nose, at any, nose up at any notion of art, anything which is fictional, you know, he, he's, he's so much of a realist that he's lost all touch of reality. Mm. So that he becomes a dragon because he is already a dragon. So that, you know, he yes. becomes a, mm-hmm. what happens, he outwardly manifests in, in his appearance what he already was in his soul. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, the parallels here, of course, with Tolkien, the dragon sickness in The Hobbit, you know, it's not just dragons that suffer from the dragon sickness. Mm-hmm. You know, Bilbo and, and Thorin Oakenshield and others suffer from the dragon sickness. Well, Eustace has the dragon sickness, and it manifests itself ultimately through the fact he is a dragon internally, mm-hmm. he becomes a dragon Yeah, And externally. could you say a little bit more about... Uh, the kind of idea of a dragon within maybe, you know, both medieval or Lewis and Tolkien's mythologies? Yeah, the key thing about a dragon, a dragon's not a monster in the sense that a dinosaur is a monster. Mm-hmm. It's not scary because it's big and, mm-hmm. and breathes fire. It's scary because it's wicked and malicious and, and can destroy you, mm-hmm. not merely physically, but, 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 but spiritually. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a type of, uh, of, uh, uh, of Satan. So it's mm. it's it's the it's a manifestation of demonic evil. So a dragon wow. is something demonic, mm-hmm. and of course it tempts us. Dragons are prideful, they're avaricious. Mm-hmm. They are possessed by their possessions. Uh, that that Smaug in, in the Hobbit is actually trapped by his possessions. He daren't leave the horde, the you know, mm-hmm. the dragon horde. None of which is any, of any use to him whatsoever, right? Mm-hmm. Because he's possessed by it, being possessed by his possessions. So. When when uh, Eustace manifests that sort of dragon sickness in his attitude to others, in his desire for wealth, his greed, um, he, so the, when he when he wakes up and discovers that he's become a dragon, it's me- merely an outward manifestation, an incarnation of what he is already. Yeah, I love this. Uh, this is a story that uh, a quote that you um, quote in your book, uh, but it's interesting. Only when he when his 
his state is manifested and his inward dragonness, this desire to control and devour and uh, hoard uh, that becomes manifest. Then he, he says he wanted to be friends. He wanted to get back among humans, talk and laugh and share things which were all the things that he couldn't do before. Right. Even though he was on the ship, he was utterly alone. He wrote a diary in which he would you know, look at everyone and criticize everyone. He realized that he was a monster cut off from the whole human race. An appalling loneliness came over him. He began to see that the others had not really been fiends at all. He began to wonder if he himself had been such a nice person that he has always supposed. He longed for their voices. He would be grateful for a kind word, even from Ripachi, right? This, that when he becomes a monster cut off and he sees that, then he begins to desire companionship. He desires friendship. Yeah. And basically, you know, he's excommunicated himself from human love. Mm. And when he realizes that he, mm -hmm. he cannot have that human love anymore, because there's this barrier that's been put up now, a physical one, not merely yeah. a metaphysical one, that he, he then realized what he's lost. You know, sometimes mm. we have to have things taken away from us. Um, so, you know, a favorite uh, saying of mine is, 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 um, uh, is of Oscar Wilde, you know, but God's eternal laws are kind and break the heart of stone. But how else but through a broken heart may Lord Christ enter in? You know, that basically wow. Eustace mm -hmm. has to have his heart broken because it's, it's made of stone so that he can actually experience love. He couldn't experience love because mm -hmm. he has this heart of stone that was was not allowing him to love others or others to love him. Mm -hmm. That heart had to be broken. And in Eustace's case, it was uh -huh. by the endragoning of him, right? Making yeah. manifest mm -hmm. externally what he actually was internally. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, again, Lewis being kind of such a master of his craft, uh, he tells the story that he, Eustace recognizes this. He longs to not be a dragon anymore. He longs to have friends. He begins to actually become helpful, right? As a dragon on the island, he uh, cuts down some big, you know, get, brings food. He cuts down big trees for them so they can fix the mast, um, right? As they said, I think they, they, they began to actually enjoy his personality for the first time, right? So he begins to kind of have this moral change. Uh, but at the same time, the discovery of the moral law is not enough. Could you say more about Right. What ends up, what, what, what happens to Eustace and how, uh, how important this is for uh, the story and for Lewis's theology? Yeah. Well, b before we talk about the undragoning okay. uh, of, of Eustace, I'd like to talk about you know, how others respond to him. So what the, the mm -hmm. nobility. So Lucy, of course, the f either Lucy or Edmund, it's unclear in the, in the narrative which yes. one or other of them was the first one to say, hang on, I, this is not just a dragon. Mm -hmm. it's, it, and then perhaps it's Eustace, right? Mm -hmm. And then Reapy Cheap, who had, who had been uh, you know, Eustace's sworn enemy, mm -hmm. shows true nobility and, 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 and largesse and magnanimity and love charity and, and, and he's the one that spends hours talking and trying to comfort eustace mm -hmm. even though he he's the one that's been wronged by eustace right okay. loving his enemy mm -hmm. so we see this nobility in reaper but then you know that eustace has to first of all see himself as he is and in order to be undragoned you know as aslan informs him he's going to have to embrace pain suffering mm -hmm. now, we i can remove your, your dragon skin and make you Eustace, uh, the, the, the boy again, but it's going to hurt. And, and I can't do it against your will. Mm -hmm. 
No, you have to want me to do it. In other words, there's a purgatorial dimension yeah. to, 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 to the conversion. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, the, the, heart, the heart has to be broken. The heart mm-hmm. is, there, there has to be suffering there. And there has to be not just suffering. And this is key. There has to be a willing acceptance yeah. of suffering, mm-hmm. which is very different. And so uh, Aslan can't do anything until Eustace willingly accepts the suffering that's necessary. Yeah, there's that beautiful line where he says, right, let me undress you. Right. Right. His claws can take off the dragon skin, but not without Eustace's permission. Yes. And Eustace is afraid. He tries to take off his own dragon skin three times, and each time it comes back. Uh, Lewis is loves moral effort, and at the same time always shows how our moral effort will eventually lead us to discover our own bankruptcy. And then we can surrender all to, in this case, to Aslan uh, for his help. Uh, Maybe just one other uh, interesting theme is that Eustace also, uh, not only do we learn about his parents, but we also learn about his school. His school of education is, uh, right, the experiment house. Uh, it's, It's a school of Uh, maybe like empirical knowledge, but then utter kind of freedom. And what is really revealed as anarchy and what is really revealed is just people run around and bully and uh, turns immediately into uh, really a a situation of uh, great kind of horror at the ways that some of the children uh, bully the other children. uh, And right. And so you kind of this, in a way, Lewis thinks that modern education, at least in some of its instantiations, if it has no higher good and doesn't seek to transform the soul in accord with that good and is merely looking at facts and freedom, it actually ends up kind of enslaving. So uh, how would you say in a way that Eustace receives a real education in Narnia? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, obviously, as we've said, the connection between Eustace's parents and George Bernard Shaw. George Bernard Shaw was a Fabian socialist, and and what Lewis is doing here is it's it's a a satire Mm -hmm. on modern socialist innovations in education. Mm -hmm. And and I'm going to I'm going to quote Oscar Wilde again here because there's a a line in one of Oscar Wilde's poems. He says, "Anarchy, freedom's own Judas." So basically, if you if you abandon law, you don't end up with freedom. You end up with anarchy, and anarchy is an unstable situation. So what ends up happening? It's the rule of the mob. So in actual okay. fact, it's the, which is the rule of the strongest. Mm-hmm. So you know, so the, the the weak end up being bullied. Mm-hmm. No, so again, Edmund Burke says liberty itself must be limited in order to be possessed. Mm-hmm. So the irony that kind of tradition, in some sense, safeguards the weak. Exactly. Right, this idea. And so in part here, this is almost maybe Lewis's, uh, your suggestion of the satire. Uh, There's a little bit in here of uh, kind of at the outskirts of the book of um, like Orwell's uh, Animal Farm of kind of showing that the school and the experiment house and this form of education actually become really destructive and abusive. Yeah, we see it in an adult book by by by, by Lewis in in, in uh, that hideous strength. That this is a yes. satire mm-hmm. on on modern socialism and modernism. Uh, uh, so we see the same thing in the thought. This is a satirical element, but the point is this: as well as being just um, uh, a free for all, well, not a free for all. Mm-hmm. It's where it's where the mob and the bullies run everything. Everybody else lives in 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 fear. Yeah. They're they're learning nothing of value, right? Mm-hmm. As you say, just purely empirical facts. That 
in, in going into Narnia, he learns the moral law. He actually learns about metaphysics, not merely physics, right? And so he learns these deeper lessons, goodness, yeah. truth, beauty, the, the love and the, and the cost of love. Love, yeah. the, the love is not free. There's no such thing as free love. Yeah. Free, love always comes at a price. So he learns all those absolutely priceless lessons yeah. um, in, in this real education, which he gets yeah. by entering Narnia and which we get by entering Narnia by opening the pages of the book. Yeah, and it's uh, it's great that his first act after the conversion is there's a, a sea dragon that's a, a, a sea serpent that's attacking the ship, and he takes uh, a sword and hacks it at the dragon. Of course, he ruins the sword, uh, which is the second best sword on the ship, but it was the first thing of courage he'd ever done. Uh, and Lewis really thought that, uh, right, for us to, even if we have the right values, we won't have the strength to act on them unless we develop courage. So education ought to be helping people become more courageous and perhaps at times at least learning to admit when our courage has failed. Uh, so shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to look at another kind of great scene or I think Lewis felt that we were in the modern world often cut off from creation, both because uh, our faith in the truth of the gospel and our faith in the truth of right the biblical revelation of creation had weakened, but then also because we tended to look at the world as something simply uh, there for our manipulation, uh, that the world is just a lot of raw material that we can manipulate. Uh, and so, right, and, and he thinks if we kind of have this relationship to the world uh, and we can't see the world as somehow good and created uh, and given to us, uh, that we will, as he puts it in Abolition of Man, right, not only will we see the world as raw material, but we will eventually see ourselves as raw material. And as he puts it right, not only, but not raw material, uh, as we fondly wish to be manipulated by ourselves, but to be manipulated by others. Uh, so for him, recovering creation is is significant in countless ways, wonder and all these things. But So could you tell us a little bit about maybe just this great image of in The Magician's Nephew of how does Lewis kind of represent creation in that story? Yeah, there's a Parallel here with uh, the teaching of, for instance, Boethius uh, in his De Musica about the, the the music at the heart of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. And music's not just music, music instrumentalist, the music's played, not mm -hmm. heard. It's the, it's the music of the spheres themselves, the, of the beauty of the cosmos, right? The order of creation. So we have this idea of music at the heart, if you like, of, of Christian philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, we see it alluded to beautifully in, in, um, in The Merchant of Venice, but Shakespeare's play, um, when Lorenzo gives a talk, he's actually going through the three types of music that uh, Boethius gives us. Well, Tolkien and Lewis know this. Mm -hmm. So the creation of Middle Earth, you know, it's the great music. God is the composer of the cosmos, mm -hmm. right? And he presents this great music to the archangelic beings and then says, don't just hearken, but play, right? Mm. So with uh, with uh, the creation of Narnia, it's the same thing. It's it, It's sung. Mm -hmm. into being by Aslan's, Aslan's song that brings uh, everything to life. Um, and then he says three times, awake, awake, awake. You know, and it's, in, in, the, in the Everlasting Man, Chester says there's three moments uh, in reality, when he called it history, because it's um, there's when nothing becomes something, mm -hmm. right? The creation of the cosmos. 
then when something becomes alive, right? When life enters yes, the cosmos, yes. not just not just matter. And then when something becomes alive that has reason and will that can contemplate the other things that mm-hmm. are in the cosmos. So the, the, the man, so mm-hmm. awake, 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 this, 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 this repetition three times of something that's no longer asleep, but real, fully real. Uh, and then it's a love, think, speak, or the, or the words immediately after that. Mm-hmm. And this is absolutely beautiful because this, to me, is 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 both the manifestation of the of the philosophical transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Love, the good, right? Mm-hmm. Think, reason, right? Yeah, the truth, the yeah. true, uh, and 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 then, and then speak. That we're putting love and reason into some sort of form is 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 beautiful, right? Um, so. Uh, so these these things are a manifestation of that triune transcendental reality of of, of the philosophers. Mm-hmm. But also, for me, it's a manifestation of the words of Christ. When Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you know, he's saying, I am the good, the true, and the beautiful. Because in some sense, beauty, you know, is, is you know, it's not in the eye of the beholder, it's in the thing beheld. Mm-hmm. And if we don't behold what's beautiful, say, in a sunset, it's not because the sunset's not beautiful, it's because we are blind. So this, we have to have a life uh, to be able to actually experience beauty. So that beauty is somehow the life in us. That yeah. We have to be alive to it in order to be able to experience it. And we're seeing the life in the thing, the beauty of the thing, by being alive to it. Mm-hmm. So there's this thing you know, that the life is at the heart of, of beauty. So, so think, so love, think, speak, profound metaphysical mm-hmm. contemplation, meditation, but uh, within a children's story, this is mm-hmm. this is the brilliance of C.S. Lewis because a child can read it. And yeah. He's not going to get that deeper mm-hmm. understanding of it, and that's the way it should be. But then that's why you yeah. sh- that's why we should, I think, go back and return to the Chronicles of Narnia because there's all these gems that when we're old enough mm-hmm. to understand, they're like moments of epiphany, and that image of God singing His creation. I think that you know Lewis would see it as. Uh, you know, we have this kind of modern deism uh, where maybe there is a God who created the world, but now the world is on its own. God who's a clockmaker, he winds up the clock. And one of the interesting things about song or like a symphony is the moment the the orchestra stops playing, there's silence. Right. So if God is singing creation into being, then we are constantly being sung into being right now. Yeah. Yep. And so I think this image allows us to overcome that deistic view, but to think about God is creating us. God is holding us in being. It's him, as Paul would say, in him we move and live and have our being. And I just think it's wonderful how he can do that with recovering this classical traditional notion, say, from Boethius and others. Uh, and it's also interesting. Could you just uh, maybe, uh, and, and this will, you know, beginning to kind of uh, move towards our close. But could you just say a word too about how, if that's what's happening in creation, awake, 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 love, think, speak, as Aslan says, as he's singing creation into being. Uh, I love the characters though of the cabbie and Uncle Andrew, um, who kind of seeing two people witnessing this glorious moment of creation. How do they both respond? Yeah, well, one is is blinded by his pride, mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, the other is enlightened by his humility. Mm-hmm. So, but the, the Uncle Andrew's clever, right? Uh, he's educated, but 
cleverness is not the same thing as wisdom. Mm-hmm. The cabbie is not educated and he's not clever, but he has the wisdom to see something beautiful and magnificent and divine when he sees it because he's on his knees, mm-hmm. right? And, and because Uncle Andrew refuses to kneel, he's blind to the reality and, and no, amount, no amount of cleverness mm-hmm. is, is ever going to enlighten him until he's willing to, to have the wisdom to get on his knees. Yeah, that's uh, well put. And I, 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 given the fact you did title the whole book, I know you said with editorial support further up and further in, um, but I've heard you often talk about the final scene of The Last Battle. So could you just say a word maybe as a little uh, tantalize, you know, tantalize our uh, listeners uh, to eventually read to the end of the Chronicles of Narnia? Well, if, if you'll forgive me and permit me, I can, I, I can do nothing except uh, butcher the brilliance and beauty of, of, of Lewis's words. So may I just read the last paragraph of The Last Battle? It's the way I end the book, actually. Um, so this is Aslan. Uh, and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Well, that's a great place to finish with um, Lewis's uh, own words as he completes the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, so, you know, for people who'd love to learn more, you have a website. Uh, I think it's jpierce.co, uh, josephpierce.co, but J-P-E-A-R-C-E, uh, where uh, listeners can find more information about you and about your works and um, learn a lot more about Tolkien and Lewis and Chesterton and, and many others. Also, uh, the book, Further Up and Further In, Understanding Narnia, uh, is available at uh, TAN uh, Publications or Publishers. And uh, for listeners of the podcast, there's a special there's a special link, uh, Ave Maria, A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A 15, uh, and if you use that, uh, you can get 15% off. Uh, and since this is something we're trying, by the way, if you have any questions, you can send me an email and I'll do my best to help out. And uh, my email is michael.dauphine at avemaria.edu. Uh, so thanks, Joseph, so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.